Thanksgiving, to me, is still one of the purer holidays, you know? It really hasn't been commercialized too much. I guess there's not as much you can do with it to, to profit off of it. So it's been nice to have it just kind of stay, you know, in that zone, that it really is about Thanksgiving, it really is about family. I mean, sometimes we call it Turkey Day, but, uh, you know, we can still give thanks for the turkey, right? And, uh, but it is, it is something that has stayed kind of in our national consciousness since 1863. I don't know if you know, it was President Lincoln who signed the last Thursday of, of November as the National Day of Thanksgiving, and it has kind of stayed that. And so I appreciate that. And as I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about today, I was thinking that Thanksgiving as a day, as a, as a national time and remembrance, may have something to teach us. It's something that we can use to, to learn. And you know, the older I get, and that seems to be happening quicker and quicker these days, the older I get, the simpler that things look to me. I mean, I remember back in my 20s and 30s and when I was trying to figure all this out, it just seemed so complicated. There were so many things to study. You know, there's so many books coming out. There was so much theology to learn and there was so much this and so much that. And I remember my head was just, you know, like a bubble about ready to burst as I was thinking about all this stuff. After 25-some years of doing it, it just seems that more and more it's getting simpler and simpler. In fact, it's come to the point that that's how I know that I'm on a good track. I'm on the right track if I'm staying simple. If it's starting to fan out into the complex, then I have to start thinking about it. Okay, where am I going? What's going on here? You know, and now the more complicated something gets, the more I realize that it's of lesser importance than the things that are simple. I can start to make those value judgments. If something is still full of complexity, if I still really have to work at it, it's of lesser importance. That doesn't mean it's of no importance, but it's of lesser importance. The complex serves the simple. We have to work through the complex often to get to the simple. Some of us can make those intuitive leaps. Others of us have to get really complicated before it can get simple again. Kind of like learning a, a musical instrument, you know? You just hear the vibrations in the air and you think, I want to do that. I want to play saxophone. I want to play guitar, violin, whatever it happens to be. It's just vibrations in the air. It's simple. It's emotional. It's connected. It's intimate. To learn the instrument, it's very complex. You've got to learn about all of the ins and outs and the acoustics of the instrument, theory, this and that, reading music, all these things. But if you break through that and you get to the other side... It's just vibrations in the air again. You hear the sound and you can put it out there. Jesus was a master of simplicity. He tried to make everything simple for us. When talking about all these commandments, 613 written commandments and thousands of oral commandments, Jesus just boiled it down and said, hey, just love God and love each other as you love yourself. That's it. Just do that. Everything else is going to fall into place. Just seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. All this stuff that you run around after, all these things that you try to do, all of that is included here. Just love God. Love your neighbor. Seek kingdom. God's unity and connection. Everything else is commentary. Everything else that seems complicated serves that. And if you aren't doing that one simple thing, then it doesn't matter about all the rest. 
All the rest is just noise. All the rest is distraction. If it's not serving and driving you into that one simple place. But for us, as uh, complicated modern Westerners, we need a way to be able to start to understand how simple this kingdom is. This place that Jesus is trying to drive us toward, this kingdom life, how simple is it? See, we still imagine that it's full of rules and laws and church practice and doctrine and dogma and theology. We still think all of that's included in all of this. And it's fine. It is. As long, again, as it's only and always driving us toward that simplicity, that one thing. So, how simple is kingdom? How simple can it be? You know, I think it might come down to just One word. Just one word. Now, if I were to just tell you the word, (laughs) well, it's too simple. No. If I were to just tell you the word, you'd probably just kind of, you know, roll your eyes a bit or or shrug or or maybe even yawn because you're going to have heard this word a thousand times. And that's the problem. We think we've heard it all before. We think we understand what this one concept is all about, this one word is all about. But what I'm going to try to do this morning is to get across the kind of impact that is starting to have on me. The older I get, the more that I see the simplicity of things, how this is just coming to the fore and redefining kind of the way that I do the journey, redefining the ground underneath my feet. And so before we look at the word, I thought maybe it would be helpful to look at the opposite or at least look at the effect that the opposite frame of mind or paradigm creates in our world. And as I was thinking about you know, what I was going to talk about today, Marion said, you know, why don't you talk about the fact that everybody's getting angry? God, everywhere you look, everyone's angry. You know, whether it's on social media or it's here or there, it's, what is all that anger about? See, people seem to be noticing. People are even talking about the fact that we are angry more and more. Why is that anger there? What is it that's driving all of that? I found a couple of articles that I just wanted to take a little, little bits and pieces of and, uh, and see if we can look at this, because this is important. This overall anger that we're seeing boiling over in our, in our society, in our communities, is endemic of something that's deeper, And this one word that I have in mind is kind of the antidote for all of this. And so this article here, Why Are Americans So Angry About Everything? Right on point, huh? Written by uh, the rabbi of one of the the big New York synagogues um, and published in Time magazine. First of all, he's going to look at it from a macro position, perspective. You know, let's take a look at the overall and then we'll kind of dive deeper. So he writes, Americans are angry. They are angry about school shootings and taxes and mistreatment and undeserved privilege and discrimination and government. There are differences between groups, but as a recent Esquire NBC survey finds, the overall presence of rage is clear. The November survey of more than 3,000 American adults found that about half are angrier today than they were a year ago. Why are Americans so angry? All of us, whatever group, live some version of the quote-unquote Whig interpretation of history. And this might get a little geeky for a second, but just this Whig interpretation of history is simply a theory that history is always driving toward 
completion. It's always driving toward an ever-increasing march to enlightenment and higher consciousness and, and better living conditions and, and society and all of that. So that's one school of thought, that if you can look at history and interpret it, it's on this path, going in this direction. Okay. Now, if you believe that things should get better and better, then it's infuriating when they do not. So what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about expectation, obviously. If you expect things to go a certain way and they don't, then that frustration, that sense of unmet, everything that's in you is going to boil over. Expectation. In many ways, modern life is indeed better than it has ever been in the past. Report after report reaffirms this improvement. Even though some of them are now starting to say, hey, for the first time our children are going to be worse off than the parents. That the American dream is not working anymore. And so we see that too. But in other ways, yes, life is certainly better, more convenient, more technologically wired and connected, right? But the improvement in world health, for instance, may not mean that much to me if my own health care is less comprehensive than it was 10 years ago. And because we know so much more about disease, we are relentless in our discussion of wellness and diet and the pursuit of longer life. We have instant access to every catastrophe in the world, And so we obsess over creating perfect security. So what is he talking about here? Our sense of fear, our sense of insecurity. The healthcare is not going to be there when I need it. There could be a terror attack any time, any place. We're seeing it happening over and over again. It's right in the palm of our hands. We can't get away from it. North Korea is rattling sabers, whichever direction North Korea is. You know, all these things are happening at the same time, and what seems to be an accelerated pace, and it's really starting to freak me out. Insecurity. Extravagant lifestyles are also paraded uh, through our living rooms each night, so it becomes difficult to be satisfied with our own ample, but still comparatively modest means. Envy. You see the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Well, that's dating me, isn't it? You know? We see these lifestyles over from the Kardashians to this, to that, to everything. It's like, what about me? Even though I have plenty, I have enough, but I don't have what they have. You know, it would be nice to have that. That spills over as anger, envy. And much of our frustration arises in an age when atrocities and injustice are constantly paraded before our eyes. And so a sense of victimization, maybe not our own victimization, but those of the groups and the peoples that we're reading about. And that cry comes up, that anger comes up from that sense of being victimized. Particularly galling is our understanding of unfairness. From childhood, the sense that someone has received more than we have arouses anger. There is a danger whenever goods are unevenly distributed, as they are in every society that has ever existed. In modern capitalist economies, the resentment is exacerbated by vast wealth and everyone's easy glimpses into the worlds of the haves. And so there's a fifth element here, and that's entitlement. We feel that we're entitled to the things that other people are getting, that the wealth is being unevenly distributed by the government, by the whomever is in charge of these things, and I didn't get my fair share. Where's the anger coming from? You know, Anger is a blanket response to all of these negative feelings that are arising. 
When these things come up, when we're feeling victimized, when we're feeling that our expectations are not being met, the result is anger and a growing, just sort of unnamed sort of anger that is coming up. We don't even necessarily know why we're angry, but we know that we're acting out, and maybe we're not even aware of that. Mary said it's kind of like that pink slime that was flowing underneath New York in Ghostbusters. It's just there, and it's infecting us, and it's, it's going through it. You know, This anger is a way to discharge the pain, to discharge these feelings of unmet expectation and insecurity and envy and entitlement and victimization and all those things. And then the blame, as Brene Brown likes to say, is the way to discharge the anger. And so here's this cycle that is happening. From everything that we're experiencing in, in society, in our lives, in our work lives, in our home lives, sublimating into these kinds of feelings, going out into anger, and then the blame and the acting out, and then it just cycle starts all over again. So that's at a macro level. But what if we dive in a little deeper into our personal lives and take a look at this from a micro level? Here's an, a- an article called Why Are We Getting Angrier? Have you seen it happening around you recently? You misjudge a right turn into traffic and force the person behind you to slow down. In the rearview mirror, you see him screaming and aggressively showing you his favorite finger. It was your fault, but did it need to cause the person to melt down? You attend your kid's soccer game. One of the kids isn't starting the game. The parent loses her mind at the coach, right? You open up your email or Facebook and you simply can't believe the things that people are writing. People are getting angrier. Why? Why are strangers treating each other like arch enemies? Why is politics feeling more like trash talk before a professional wrestling smackdown? Why at home are we yelling at each other? It would be nice to have a scapegoat. When we face uncomfortable emotion, our first reaction is to disassociate from it. We don't want its heat to touch us. We don't want to be the cause. The challenge, unfortunately, is that our tendency toward quick and more vigorous anger is the result of three cultural realities that aren't going to change unless we change. The three realities that are making us so angry, and here's the surprising one, smartphones, the pace of life, and evolution. How do you put those three together in a sentence, huh? Your smartphone is the greatest and most dangerous tool you will ever use. It gives you access to the entire universe through the internet. It connects you to everyone you have ever known through social media. And every time you connect, you get a dopamine hit. Now, I don't know if you know about dopamine. Dopamine is just a neurotransmitter. And and what it does, it, it connects the brain to the things that there is an expectation of receiving a reward. So your dopamine really kind of drives your cravings towards something. You put something out there, you do something, you, know, you pull the lever on the slot machine, there's an expectation of a possible reward. That is reinforced by the dopamine. When you get the reward, then that's the opiate mechanism and systems. That's the endorphins and the pleasure center. But dopamine is what starts the process and reinforces the process. Activities that get rewards are reinforced. Activities that don't aren't. As soon as you log into your smartphone, guess what? The dopamine kicks in. When you post, when you share, when you like, when you comment, when you send an invite, you're creating an expectation of a reward and the dopamine kicks in with this hope of belonging, 
this hope of an increased concept of self, of identity out there in the world. And then when that is returned, when you get the like and the share and the retweets and the comments, you know, it's like getting a physical hug. The brain doesn't know the difference. Like a physical hug, like a smile, like a compliment, like an award from work. You get that same hit. All right? And then it becomes Pavlovian. As soon as you send something out there, then as soon as the phone beeps or buzzes or sends that signal, whatever it is, then it kicks in again. And you've got to go get it. I mean, haven't you been with somebody? That, as soon as that phone does anything, they've got to take a look because that's the next promise of reward, you see. And then if you share something that you already are getting a hit from, like your workout or a dinner date or something, and you take the picture and you share it, then you get a second hit off the same thing. And then when that gets returned with a like, then you get another hit, and it becomes this daisy chain of hits. Now, marketers know this stuff. They're not stupid. They know how this works. They know the physiology behind it. They are creating strategies and, and platforms that are geared toward giving you a constant drone of hits throughout the day so that you are more and more addicted to this. It's important to understand what's going on because he's saying the smartphone is a major cause of anger. We have to understand why. It is so ubiquitous. It is here all the time. It is difficult to ignore and it's driving us in certain ways. So the, the smartphones themselves, social media is giving us dopamine hits. Caffeine gives you a dopamine hit. Cocaine does too. Ever seen someone after a cocaine binge? It's not pretty. And that's most of us these days almost all the time. We want more connection, immediate gratification and validation. And when we don't get it, the alarm in our brain fires. It wants the good feeling back. It thinks something is wrong. It then short circuits the thinking part of our brain and we get angry. The problem is we've been running around all day, working longer hours than ever before, carting our kids to the soccer games and birthday parties each weekend day while trying to keep up the house and stay close to our family and friends, fulfill our volunteer commitments, and occasionally we try to do something for ourselves. All that busyness means less sleep, less exercise, less slow, leisurely meals, and more stress. Doing too much causes stress because it forces the alarm in our brains to stay on all the time. The alarm looks out for danger, and it can't calm down unless it knows that you are safe. Running around all the time, you're not safe. It doesn't want you to miss anything important, and as a result, you're tired from paying attention all the time. And then when you miss something little, you pop. Our brains can't tell the difference between what really should stress us out and little things that really shouldn't because we haven't had time as a species to catch up, to evolve enough to keep up with the modern world. Our brains weren't designed for this. And this has happened so quickly. How in the world could we have found a physical way to deal with this kind of stress, this kind of constant throughput of information triggering us. So technology, especially in the form of these smartphones, these portable things, provides this constant 24-7 flood of information and then feedback loops that foster what? Expectation, insecurity, envy, victimization, entitlement that manifest as anger and provides a platform at the same time and a pulpit to be able to spew that anger out 
over the entire globe at the touch of a button. It's an amazing thing if you see what's happened in our society. Does that about sum it up? I mean, good Lord, you've got to see what's going on here. Life now is moving so fast, our brains haven't evolved enough to be able to distinguish what is flight or fight, right? And what is not really a threat at all. So it's always keeping us at that level, filling our systems with all of that cortisol and adrenaline and everything else that is so debilitating, both emotionally and physically. We're on high alert all the time. So what's the antidote? How are we going to get out of this feedback loop? One of my favorite um, commentators, authors, I suppose, is Dennis Prager. He always seems to have a pretty good take on things. And I found another article that I want to read a little bit from because he's going to put his finger right on it. He writes, How many times have you heard someone say they want to make a better world? It's a noble sentiment, but very hard to achieve, right? Well, actually, he says, it's quite easy. All we have to do is increase just one human trait. This trait is so powerful that it alone can make people happier without working on their happiness and make them better. And by better, I mean more generous, more honest, more kind, more everything good without a single lesson in morality. So then, what is this one almost magical thing? Drum roll, please, he says. And it's going to be my same word. It's gratitude. Gratitude. Feeling a little let down right now? Did I not fulfill your dopamine hit that I started with when I built this thing all up? Gratitude, you know? But we need to look deeper. You know, we think of gratitude as simply thankfulness, you know? And, and, and we, we have to look deeper to find out how this really functions, all right? Prager writes, you can't be a happy person if you aren't grateful. Think about that. You can't be a happy person if you aren't grateful. And you can't be a good person if you aren't grateful. Almost everything good flows from gratitude. And almost everything bad flows from ingratitude. Let's begin with ingratitude. Here's a rule of life. Ingratitude guarantees unhappiness. It's as simple as that. There isn't an ungrateful, happy person on the planet. Do you know of any? An ungrateful, happy person? And there isn't an ungrateful, good person on earth. There are two reasons. Reason one is victimhood. So he's picking up on one of our five, right? Ingratitude always leads to or comes from victimhood. Ungrateful people, by definition, think of themselves as victims. They didn't get something that they were supposed to get. They didn't get something they expected to get. They didn't get something that they were entitled to get. And even if they got it, right, then they're still envious because someone else has more. Right? Or they're insecure about losing the thing that they have. In any way, they're still firing all of those things that we said leads to anger because of the ingratitude in some way, shape, or form for what they have or what they don't have. And perceiving oneself as a victim or perceiving oneself as a member of a victim group may be the single biggest reason that people hurt other people. From hurtful comments on social media to mass murder. People who think of themselves as victims tend to believe that because they've been hurt by others, they can hurt others. And the second reason ungrateful people aren't good people is that ingratitude is always accompanied by anger. The ungrateful are angry. And angry people lash out at others. 
If ingratitude makes people unhappy and mean, then gratitude must make people happy and kind. And so it does. Think of the times you felt most grateful. Were they not always accompanied by a feeling of happiness? Were they? If you can think of the times that you were given a gift that you could never have given yourself, what was that feeling like? You can say you were grateful, but weren't you also happy? Weren't you also content? Wasn't there a feeling that this was enough somehow? This moment was just fine. I didn't need to be anywhere else, with someone else, doing something else, having something else. This was okay. This is the way it works. We have to think deeper about this. Weren't those moments also accompanied by a desire to be kinder to other people? Maybe you just were and didn't even think about it. The answer, of course, is yes. Grateful people aren't angry, and they also don't see themselves as victims. The problem, however, and it's a big one, is that in America and much of the rest of the world, people are becoming less grateful. Why? Because people are constantly told that they are entitled to things that they haven't earned what are known as benefits or entitlements. And the more things that people think they should get, the less grateful they will be for whatever they do get. And the more angry and therefore unhappy they will be when they don't get them. Here are two more rules of life. Rule number one, the less you feel entitled to, the more gratitude you will feel for whatever you get and the happier you will be. Rule number two, the more you feel entitled to, the less happy you will be. So I think that Prager has nailed it here. Gratitude. And I know you've heard it a thousand times. You know, just be thankful. Count your blessings. I don't know about you. When someone tells me to count my blessings, what I really want to count is ways that I can really hurt them. <sighs> you know, it's like when you're depressed and they say snap out of it. I just want to slap them across the face. I mean, if I could do that, if I could snap out of it, if I could just count my blessings... There's something else going on here. It's not that superficial. But there's still a choice involved, right? But gratitude is more than just thankfulness. It begins there, but it journeys on someplace else. So the question becomes, how do we take this journey? How does this affect anger? How does it realize kingdom for us? And what I want to do now is just take a look at Jesus and how Jesus handled this stuff. Because if gratitude really is a hallmark of kingdom, if it's somehow deeply, intricately tied in, then we have to see it reflected in his teaching. And guess what we do? Take a look at Matthew 11, verse 2. It's in your inserts, and I'm sure Brendan, Brandon is getting it up on the screens. Now, this is John the Baptist that they're talking about here. John, who was thrown in prison because he spoke out against the king, truth to power, and all that sort of thing, finds himself in in jail, can't get out. He believed that Jesus was the expected one. He was probably in a scene, so for for him, that meant someone who was actually going to come in and establish a sovereign Israel, throw the Romans out and, and start a whole new practice, bring purity back to the religion and the temple and everything else. So when John, while in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, said to Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, the disciples, go and report to John what you hear and what you see. 
The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What's going on here? John had an expectation. He thought that Jesus, as the expected one, as this figure whose sandals he was not fit to untie, whom he baptized in the river, his cousin was the one who was going to do all the things, and then he's not seeing them getting done. In fact, he's seen Jesus go in the opposite direction. He's seen him hang out with prostitutes and tax gatherers. He's seen him doing things that seem to be working down the ladder of success as far as he's concerned. What the heck? Are you the expected one? What's going on here? What is Jesus telling him? Look around you, John. See what's right in front of your face. See what's right under your nose. See what's going on here. The subtext is, man, you know the scriptures better than anyone. You know the writings of the prophets. Because he's quoting right from Isaiah here to him. Look what's happening. Can't you see it? It's your expectation alone that is getting in the way. It's what you're bringing to the moment that is holding off all of the joy and all of the connection that this moment holds for you. All of the gratitude that this moment holds for you. You aren't seeing it. Look and see, John. Break through that stuff you brought to the party so that you can see what's going on. Expectation. Overcome by awareness. That's the key here. Take a look at John 14, verse 8. This is Jesus about to go to the cross at the Last Supper with his disciples, and they're freaking out because he told them that he's going to be leaving them. And Philip speaks up and says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Here's the insecurity. Right before this, he says to, you know, he says, you know, here I am, I'm going, you know, you know the way, you can come after me. And Thomas says, I don't know the way, show us the way. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Then Philip, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. This is our insecurity talking. He's going away? We've been holding on to his, him for all these years, and now what the heck do we do? He said, I am the way, show us the Father. I am the Father. Essentially, there is no difference between us. Everything that you see me doing is what the Father does through me. You've seen the Father. It's intimacy that overcomes the insecurity. It is seeing who it is that you're walking with, who you're walking through as the way. But actually paying attention and seeing what's going on here and really realizing at this deeper level, how can you lose if you're walking with the one, how could you possibly? There's no way to be fearful. There's no way to be ungrateful if you understand who your traveling companion is. How about Luke 15, that verse 11? This is the prodigal son. We know the story. Younger son, give me my inheritance now. Goes off, squanders it, and then realizes when he's blown it all that his father's servants or living better than he is, and comes back. Father immediately, without any reparation, without any apology, without anything from the young man, just throws himself on him, can't stop kissing him, and throws a party. 
Now, at verse 25, his older son was out in the field. And when he came and approached the house and heard the music and dancing, he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother became angry and was not willing to go in. So his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father says to his son, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and is found. Envy. Envy. He's looking at his brother, what his brother has, and he can't stand it. You know? What is Jesus saying? What's the answer to that? What part of everything don't you understand? You already have everything there is to have, everything there is to get. There is no more that you can get. Envy, by its very definition in that scenario, is meaningless. You already have everything. What's left to be envious over? And to try to diminish someone else's portion of everything can't increase you anymore because you already have everything. Envy is overcome by a sense of spiritual abundance. This abundance that Jesus is trying to get across to us. Do you see how he's going with this? And everything always leads back to gratitude. Luke 7, 36, but actually starting at verse 39. This is where Jesus was invited to dinner with Simon, a Pharisee. And while he's reclining at the table, a woman comes in who is known as the worst sinner in the village. And she heard that Jesus was there and she comes with an alabaster jar of perfume and she's sobbing. And she comes up to his feet as he's reclining at the table and she's sobbing on his feet and she's wiping his feet with her tears, with her hair, and she pours the oil over his feet, wipes that with her, with her hair. And when the Pharisee, the dinner host there, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. For a Pharisee to have uh, someone who was unclean touch them made them ritually unclean. And so they avoided it at all costs. And so Simon is seeing this and realizing, he doesn't have my values then, right? Something else is going on here. But Jesus answers him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Entitlement. See, Simon the Pharisee was someone who did everything right. He followed the law exactly. Everything was to the letter. That's what the Pharisees were all about by this time in Jewish history. An absolute following of not only the written law, but also their oral traditions. And here's this woman who's doing everything wrong. She's not entitled to the same kind of connection that he is. See who he is? What is Jesus answering to him when he sees this? The the, the two hearts, 
one so hard, one so closed off, and one so broken and so open. He's trying to get them to understand that everything that we have is a gift. Everything that we have is a forgiveness of debt. It's impossible for us to earn the things that really matter in life. And really, when you think about it, all we're ever doing, life is sort of like a box of Lego bricks. We've been given all the bricks. All we can do is put them in different shapes and orders and colors. We're rearranging stuff. We can do that. But it's all a gift. All of life is a gift. You can't earn it. And if you can't earn it, then you can't feel entitled to it. The only proper response is gratitude. It's just that sense of, oh my God, I've been given this thing that I couldn't ever give myself. And it just takes you to your core. There's nothing you can do but weep and dry Jesus' feet with your hair if you're really in that place. To realize that nothing is earned is to become vulnerably dependent, fearlessly dependent, fearlessly vulnerable. There's two words we don't put together. And of course, to be grateful. And finally, at John 5, verse 1, verse 5. This is a story of the man when Jesus comes in at the gate and the pool of Bethsaida. And uh, there's a man who's been er infirm there for 38 years. And he's waiting because there is a, a tradition that the angels will come down and stir up the waters. And when they do that, the first one in the pool is the one who's healed. And Jesus comes upon this man and he says, there's a man who had been there for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, there's a question. You know, I'm sitting here with a broken leg. Do you wish to get well? Duh, yeah. You would think so. Well, kind of a trick question. But what does the man answer? Look at this response. Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answers him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. She's probably thinking a simple yes would do. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. This is victimization. The hallmark of a victim is not that you've been hurt. The hallmark of the victim is that you had no choice in the matter. That's a victim. This man sees himself as a victim, someone who has no choice. He's there because he doesn't have anyone to put him in the pool when the water is stirred up, to be the first one to be healed. He can't do it on his own. He hasn't apparently gone through the process of getting enough friends in his life who will put him in for himself. And so he sits there year after year for 38 years. And then when he's asked, do you want to get well? He can't even say yes. He has bought in. He has become so connected, so identified with his victimization that he can't even answer a question like that. And so what does Jesus say? He says, choose. You do have a choice. Choose. Exercise that choice. Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Take the action. You are not a victim. You don't have to stay in this place anymore. You can get up. You can walk. With all of these and so many more, Jesus is always pointing in the same direction. Always taking us to the same place. We overcome expectation with awareness. That's why we're so, so 
focused on the contemplative life here. The contemplative life is what builds your awareness, makes you aware of the moment that you're in. How in the world are we going to be able to overcome the expectations that we don't even know are there, that color our moments without being aware of what's going on? We overcome insecurity with intimacy. The intimacy of that silent prayer. The intimacy of being vulnerable with each other and showing each other who we really are. We overcome envy with a sense of spiritual abundance, the inner abundance that Jesus talks about. We're not starting with nothing. We're starting with everything. It changes the whole calculus. It changes the whole attitude with which you move through life to realize you're starting with everything. And your spiritual journey is about subtraction, about getting rid of all the things that are covering over that essential truth about your human condition. We overcome entitlement with a sense of vulnerability and dependence to realize that we don't earn anything. It's given to us. And we overcome victimization with actual choice, with action, with moving out, with realizing that we can't sit on the couch and pray this away. We're going to have to get up and take the steps prayerfully, but take the steps, pick up the pallet and walk and then find out what it is that we do have to be grateful for. We're walking here. Didn't think I could do that. And all of these, every single one of these creates the same sensation in our spirit, in our lives. Gratitude. It's all gratitude. When we live in awareness, intimacy, vulnerability, sense of dependence, sense of abundance, freedom to choose, action, motion. What does that feel like? What does it feel like to live that way? It feels like gratitude. There's no other way to describe it. And gratitude is what feels like happiness, like fulfillment, like meaning, like purpose, like our own identity. What Jesus is trying to tell us is that gratitude is what kingdom feels like. Gratitude is kingdom's default position, if you want to put it that way. If you're really in kingdom, what you're experiencing is gratitude and everything that flows from gratitude. You don't create gratitude, you know? You don't really just count your blessings into gratitude, although that's a beginning. It's a beginning into thankfulness. But gratitude really is what happens to you when you let go of all that stuff that you're carrying around. All that stuff that you think you need that you need to do, that you need to believe, that you need to remember. When all of that stuff just gets laid down, what's left is that simple feeling, gratitude. When you get very simple, when you let this all become as simple as Jesus is trying to convey to us, when you just let kingdom come upon you, it's already here, We're just blocking it with everything we think we know. But when you let that go and you just let kingdom come inside, fill you with gratitude, then everything changes. This is what Jesus is after. Not a blind following of rules or obedience into some sort of code or standard. It's to just 
let kingdom come and fill you with this gratitude that flows out of you as generosity and kindness and happiness. This is it. So simple. I was struck by this last thing I want to read you from Walt Whitman, 19th century. I think he just captures it, doesn't he? He writes, This is what you shall do. Love the earth and sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Argue not concerning God. I love that. Have patience and indulgence toward the people. Re-examine all you have been told at school or church or in any book and dismiss whatever insults your own soul. And your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. Talk about a living temple. Talk about continuous prayer. It's right there. And it'll feel like gratitude. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a grateful people. You know what each one of us is going through. You know the contents of our heart. You know the struggles. You know intimately each one of our unique situations. Help us. We look to you. We can't do this on our own. All we can do is come to you like little children, your dependents, and ask. And so we're asking, Father, Help us in any way that we need to be helped. Take us into the difficult places that we need to go in order to learn how to let go of the things we don't need so we can find the one thing that will take us home. And we do want to go home. Father, thank you for loving us this much. Thank you for always being at our side. We love you. And we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.